0: I'm Gregory Berg, and today's Morning Show podcast honors an amazingly talented and versatile soprano named Marnie Nixon. Today, the 22nd of February, would have been her 90th birthday. The interview that you're going to hear was recorded back in 2006 upon the publication of her fascinating memoir called, I Could Have Sung All Night.
1: I couldn't go to bed My head's too light To try to set it down Sleep, sleep I couldn't sleep tonight Not for all the jewels In the crown I could have danced all night I could have danced all night And still have begged for more I've spread my wings and done a thousand things I've never done before. I'll never know what made it so exciting, why all it was.
0: And that wonderful voice and that beautiful artistry belong to Marnie Nixon, one of the great singers of our time, and also someone with such an interesting story. Marnie Nixon is probably most enduringly famous for providing the, uh, the major singing in the, the major motion picture musicals The King and I and West Side Story and My Fair Lady. But Marnie Nixon, beyond that, uh, has also enjoyed a long, distinguished career in which she has worked with some of the great musicians of our time and experienced all kinds of interesting things and fortunately has sat down to write a wonderful book about all of that, a book called I Could Have Sung All Night, a little bit of a takeoff on a famous moment from My Fair Lady. I Could Have Sung All Night, my story. Marnie Nixon, uh, who has uh, written this with the assistance. Of uh, Stephen Cole a very well-known musical theater writer the book is published by Billboard Books and I am again pleased and honored for the next few minutes to be speaking with soprano Marnie Nixon. Marnie Nixon we welcome you to The Morning Show.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Great to have you here I'm so glad you wrote this book and I'm curious not everybody who has an an interesting career uh, takes the time uh, to write about it Uh, tell us a little bit about what Uh, inspired you to to make that choice, to sit down and write a book about uh, the life and the career which you have enjoyed?
2: Well, everybody has been asking me questions over the years um, about what the dubbing has been like and what the process is. And um, then they start asking me questions about uh, what it was like with Liberace, singing with him. What? How, what was what was it like to record with Stravinsky and to rehearse with him? And um, how come you know how many children do I have and how did I raise that? And what was Ernest Gold like, uh, who wrote the music for Exodus? And he was quite a well-known um, composer. And you know just questions like that. And I thought, well, I should write that down. And a lot of my students really have not known what it was like in Los Angeles in the 1950s growing up in those days and uh, the kind of things that went on and the the way the um, I think technically the recording industry went and uh, working with Bernstein and Meta and Stokowski and Bruno Walter and famous conductors and opera. You know, they just keep asking me about that, and I didn't know about that, so I decided I would... And I really, uh, I, it started with my mother keeping a scrapbook of everything that I did when I was a kid. I was a, a violinist and then went into singing in my teenage years. And so I've kept, my, I've kept archives and programs and writings about me over the years. And I sorted those out. And then uh, it took me about three years to, to do this with several other ghost writers, by the way, and finally Stephen Cole appeared, and there we went.
0: Ah. Well, the result is absolutely fascinating, and I suppose the very nature of your career helps make this such an interesting book. I mean, I mean, it's also very, very well written, but the fact is that somebody who uh, had a career that was much more sort of, of single focus Doing the same sort of thing just year after year, but it's just that you're you're singing with a different Alfredo in La Traviata. But I mean, otherwise, <laughs> maybe not a whole lot changes. And your your career has been such a, a really varied one. For our listeners, it should also be uh, noted that you have some interesting ties uh, to the state of Wisconsin, or, or at least your parents do. That's
2: correct. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Mm-hmm. That that's correct. Uh, my parents were raised in Mayville, Wisconsin. I've forgotten the name of the places they were born, but close by. But, but um, my mother's family uh, were the Whitkey family, W-I-T-T-K-E, and they, uh, they lived in Mayville. And then my father's family moved. They were Scottish. They, they were the minorities in the, in the city uh, because they were Scottish. They moved also there, and so they they were raised together. MacEtherin is my last name. Mm. And um, they were childhood sweethearts and lived all the time in Mayville, Wisconsin, until after they got married, then after my, my two older sisters were born, they moved to California. And I also did this uh, premiere of Richard Wargo's Valley Moor which was at the Skylight Opera Theater.
0: In Milwaukee. In
2: Milwaukee.
0: Not, not all that many years ago.
2: Right. And I also have, have appeared in Milwaukee on, uh, there was an outdoor theater at one point in the summertime. I think mm. I did uh, Oklahoma there.
0: Very good. I have to mention about your Skylight appearance. My best friend, who's a big opera fan as I am, uh, on our way to Chicago uh, uh, to, to go see the Lyric, he said, uh, "We have to play twenty questions. I have to tell you who I just saw at the Skylight Opera, and so we're playing twenty questions, which we often do. And so, uh, and I said, so, is it a man or a woman? It was okay. It's a woman. It's a soprano. <laughs> yes. And has she been in opera? Yes. Is she famous for opera? Yeah. And I mean, back and forth. And 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 it's very, very seldom I'm stumped in twenty questions. I'm really good at that game, but I was stumped." And the answer ultimately was, I saw Marnie Nixon, mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, your career is not easily summarized, and uh, I mean, in terms of we know what you are most famous for, but the fact that you've done so many things means that you know filling in the blank after the name Marnie Nixon is not as simple a matter as it might be with someone else who's had a a simpler uh, career. So
2: that's that's true. I think it, it also. Uh does not lead to instant stardom. I mean, you don't just become an overnight success in a Broadway show, and so it's sort of like you, you kind of work into it. You pay your dues in all these different places, and then you stay working in those places. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, I, th- I think its um, it's been the thing also that has kept me alive and kept me really uh, performing all these years is that variety, and it's made me a good teacher also. I do a lot of teaching.
0: Very good. Well, the year was 1927, where, as you say, your family piled into its old beat-up Buick and traveled all the way from Nina, Wisconsin to California to establish a very interesting life there, Uh, a life which uh, included uh, even the excitement of an earthquake, but more importantly later on, all kinds of really important music-making. Tell us a little bit about, in particular, your relationship with your mother and the way in which your mother uh, nurtured your uh, your talents and interest in uh, in being a musician.
2: Well, I would say that my mother, you, you wouldn't, in, in those days, we always, all of my sisters and I didn't think of my mother as nurturing at all. She was supporting and she was uh, teaching and she was very dictatorial and very strict. And, uh, of course, later on we realized that that was just her way of really, really nurturing us and teaching us the, the right ways to focus and practice. And uh, we had a family orchestra, and we practiced our instruments every morning, and we did our chores, and we really worked hard all the time, even before we went to school. And then we always um, were taken out of school once a year and... Uh, Went and did homeschooling because she always she always railed against the public school system, especially in California. And then we always had, um, you know, incidental lessons to go to, and uh, we didn't have a lot of money uh, necessarily. I mean, we weren't poor, but we had to make the money for those lessons. So then we started singing together and performing together as kids, and we started doing extra work and. Uh, uh, bit parts i particularly and my younger sister in the movies just to to support our our habit there <laughs> and uh, so i mean that was her way of nurturing and uh and she was very very strict and also very um she organized a lot of uh, like the fine arts club and uh really f- uh, like a a leader of the community, and it was wonderful.
0: Hmm. Let's talk a moment about these films which uh, which you were in, in, in many cases in the background. You say of over 50 movies, including uh, some really big films like The Great Waltz and The Grapes of Wrath and films which involved people like Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, Deanna Durbin. I mean, that, that really had to be uh, exciting, was it?
2: Oh, yes, very exciting. A um, lot of those, it was just... Um, just little extra work, and of course, we were kids. And I had huge freckles and red hair, and I had a very loud voice, and uh, so I could, and I could take direction very well. And um, then that just gradually led into the dubbing, and later on in my adult years.
0: Hmm. I do like that. Uh, in the midst of, of that experience of of um of doing some work in, in in films, sometimes in the background, sometimes small roles. That you are also experiencing great music. Tell our listeners, for instance, the story of the first time you encountered the great violinist Fritz Kreisler.
2: Oh my goodness, that would that changed my life. I've forgotten how old I was. I think I tracked it down in, in the movie, in in the book. I can't. Um... It
0: looks like the year was 1937.
2: Okay, so I was seven years old. Uh, now everybody knows how old I am, <laughs> um, and uh, my mother woke me up one day. She hadn't warned me about this. It woke me up after I'd gone to sleep, and she said, "We're going downtown. Get dressed, and uh, and I have a surprise for you." So I was groggily finally dragged into the backstage of the. Uh, it was a Baptist uh, church auditorium where the Los Angeles Philharmonic made their. Home, and the orchestra concert was in progress and uh, we sort of opened up there was a little curtain in the alcove just by the stage and I saw this man standing there sort of an ordinary looking man with curly hair and he was playing the violin with the piano on stage um, I... It, it sounded like a full orchestra to me, but it was just a piano and this violin, and I heard this sound coming out of the... It was the most glorious, kind of sensuous, beautiful sound, and he was playing... Uh, it turned out to be the Liebeslide, um that he had composed, and um, the I remember just being enthralled and... I then looked at the audience, or first of all, I looked at my mother who had tears in her eyes, and my violin teacher was with us, too. She had tears in her eyes, and then I looked at the audience, and they were all fighting tears, Hmm. and I, I, I had a lump in my throat, and I started to cry, and we just sat there in this glorious kind of ecstasy of this wonderful sound coming Mm. out, and just this guy just sitting, sawing away. I just thought it was the most (laughs) wonderful thing in
0: the world. I I love how you write this. Uh, I had loved the violin before, but had never heard it played like this. Along with the tears, I had the feeling of not being able to catch my breath. I looked around the audience and saw I was not alone. Everyone was totally enraptured. And looking over at my mother's friend, she too had tears streaming down her cheeks. But the surprise weeper was my mother. I had never thought of my mother. As being that vulnerable I should have known better this was the woman who would do anything to make sure that I fulfilled my destiny this was a woman in love with talent I pinched myself so that I would never forget that moment <laughs> beautifully written oh, we're, thank you. we're speaking with Marnie Nixon and we're talking about her memoir I could have sung all night interestingly enough for as powerful as that experience was it's four years later that you make the decision that your ultimate musical destiny uh, lay not with the violin, but actually with your singing voice. Right. Was that an easy decision or a difficult decision for you to make?
2: Oh no, that was easy. It wasn't really a decision at all. It just sort of, to me, like it happened to me. I, we we had been singing, my sisters and I, just to to because we had to sing, we had to perform so much. We thought, well, we could. We could uh, augment our performing skills, and we just started uh, singing things for the PTAs and uh, and Kiwanis clubs and things that would pay a little bit for these kids to come in and perform. And it was just—it turns out that it's just like for music, I and mean, then music itself is a thing that that has been a part of my life and is my religion, I guess. Um, and singing was like a very personal thing. It was much more personal, and I realized that the reason why I I went into the violin and then finally the singing was that I kept wanting to express myself, and I found that when I sang, I could do that with words and, uh, and still be a part of the music that way in a very personal expression. So um, uh, I was... We were going to the Pomona State Fair. We do that. We did that every year. And um, there was a sweepstakes uh, contest that was going to be going on. And my sister said, when we were in the car, she said, uh, well, I will sing, I I will play the Blue Danube for you. Um, I think I forgot my violin. Mm. <laughs> for some strange reason. I'll play the Blue Daniel for you if, if you sing it. So I sang it, and I won this sweepstakes contest and uh, won $100, which in those days...
0: Well, that was a it, lot of money back It was
2: a lot of money, and a Coast to Coast Network broadcast. And I thought, well, this is... Uh, This is easier than than playing the violin. I think (laughs) I'll really do (laughs) this.
0: One of the other contests you were part of actually led you uh, into the orbit of of a famous, famous choral director, Roger Wagner. Tell us uh, uh, what it was like to sing under him.
2: Well, uh, he he took us... The the Bureau of Music had sponsored a concert, uh, a contest. It was from the uh, Los Angeles Bureau of Music um, chorus, choral, that I had auditioned for and gotten into and then he took the the eight winners from that contest and formed his chorale. he was the most colorful controversial kind of person he he adored music and uh, <clears throat> adored um get um conducting of course and um, so uh, he was he was <laughs> uh, he I found out later that all of the girls and finally the women in his chorus, which became the Los Angeles Master Chorale, that he put a, he he put a make on all the girls, and they all had to run like crazy. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> and I, for some reason, he never did that to me. And I, of course, in those days, I thought, oh, there's something wrong with me. Why did he?
1: Mm.
2: <laughs> I mean, I had I was really. Uh, uh, I I guess I became one of his favorite soloists and and I became soloist with his chorale and made my debut at 17 with the uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic doing the Mozart Requiem. I was a uh, soprano soloist in that. And uh, uh, I don't know, he was just very vital and fun and he told dirty jokes which we thought was really you know, fantastic. That made <laughs> you
0: feel made you feel like adults, I suppose, even at the, the tender age of 17. Mm. You also mentioned on your book that he was notorious for learning music at the same time he was teaching it to you, which yes. doesn't seem like the best way to do it, but uh, there you go.
2: Yes, we always... Uh, <clears throat> we always criticized him because he seemed like he didn't know the music until he got in front of us, and yet he was very angry that we didn't read it right off. Of course, he had hired or he had gotten together, this group, and we had to have a, a um, contest every every year. We had to pass this test in order to read music right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So if we didn't read the music right off the bat, then he got mad. I think it was because he didn't know the right yet. But then, of course, he learned it very, very fast, and he was wonderful and very inspirational on, on the stage. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he got us a lot of uh, opportunities. We used to sing for the movies then, the, in the background when they had chorus work. Uh, we would the chorus would go down, and um, he also I, when the, when I was going to get married, I ran over to his house and said I was going to get married. It was all very exciting. He he lives close by us at that point, and um, he advised me against it he said it was going to go give up my career blah 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 and then he eventually hired my husband to do some arrangements for him but never paid took the credit for for it but all in all he was the most inspirational and wonderful person had a wonderful concept of singing and it was just you know we had to forgive him all his foibles and just be a part of the the wonderful music making we made with
0: him. Mm. I know that the, one of the great joys of that was uh, that is where you first met and befriended the great Marilyn Horn.
2: Yes, yes, and, and Marilyn and I were cohorts in that chorus, and uh, we uh, always saved ourselves by uh, by getting into the giggles. We were these teenagers, of course, and everything seemed so funny, and and. They had to finally separate us because we would get into the giggling that we just thought that people were hysterically funny. Hmm. They were, I suppose. <laughs>
0: right, you tell such a nice story of of how uh, in the year two thousand, you and Marilyn Horn um, were were some of the alums of the old Roger Wagner Corral, which came eventually to be known as the Los Angeles Master Corral. Came together for a, a special concert in which a a conductor was retiring and you talk about opening up old trunks and pulling out musty old music from decades before and still being able to sing it and i read those words and uh, thought that's one of the most wonderful things about a given piece of music is how it can so powerfully connect us with our own past
2: oh it's that is so true well this was uh roger wagner had had retired from the the chorale, and we had all gone on our individual careers, most of the soloists. And uh, then Paul Solomonovich, who had been in the choir and one of the original members, took over as conductor and conducted that chorale for many, many years later. Then Paul was retiring, and uh, he was going through also a lot of chemotherapy. We didn't know whether he would stay alive or not. So Harve Presnell and uh, Marilyn Horn and I decided that we would give ourselves, lend ourselves to a concert for uh, for his retiring, and so we all uh, came upon this wonderful concert, and they were then performing some of the things that we always did in our opening uh, phrases of of the concerts that we did together. Um, uh, Palestrina, uh, Alleluia, and really uh, <clears throat> some old music and Monteverdi, and um, we were some of the solos that we had done with the chorale, with the wonderful arrangements that had been made. We were able to do, and then we did other things too with with the chorale, uh in a, in a solo form, and and some of these things. We sang in the same keys, and it was very heady, and then at the end we slipped back into the chorus to do the the final phrases. But I tell you, to be able to go back and sing in a chorus and to kind of immerse yourself in something that's bigger than you and uh, that is just sort of taking place, and you're just a little cog in it, and it it creates this huge experience. We could hardly sing. I mean, we were all (laughs) with tears in our eyes
0: well it's it's so cool to hear that i mean because i think most people imagine that the greatest thing in the world is to be in the spotlight and of course there's something to be said of course for that for being the soprano soloist in mozart's requiem or or dubbing the lead role in west side story whatever it might be but there is another kind of excitement really just as rich when you are part of something bigger than yourself
2: well actually it's all about that um at first you're in in the group doing it but even when you're even when you're a soloist and you're playing you're singing with orchestra or even just singing with piano, the music is bigger than you and suddenly you're just a part of that. It's a real I think it's a real religious experience.
0: Those are such interesting years and I at one point in the book you say that there were people that were interested in trying to make you the next Jane Powell, but what your goal, in fact, was to be the first Marnie Nixon. And I guess the fact that you were singing music uh, with Igor Stravinsky tells us right there that you had aspirations that uh, that far exceeded uh, the goals that others had for you of, of being satisfied with... Uh, with uh, musicals and the Arthur Godfrey Show and so on. I mean, you had very high aspirations as a musician.
2: Well, I guess I did. I, I wasn't... I don't know that I was aware of it in those terms, but it's it now that I look back, and that's one of the interesting things in writing a book, you, it's sort of like doing an analysis of yourself. You have a perspective of yourself that you... When you look back at it and you see the, the storylines happening, um, I think... All I was, all I was thinking of is that um, um, I just wanted to to sing myself. You know, I, I don't think I thought of becoming a big star or anything. It was just, um, I just, I don't know. Maybe you said it. Maybe you said it better than me.
0: Well, we we both said it well. <laughs> yeah. I we're speaking with Marnie Nixon, and we're talking about her memoir, "I Could Have Sung All Night: My Story." It says something about how interesting your life has been, that only now are we finally getting to what ultimately made you the most famous, not that fame was what this was all about, but the first of your three major dubbing uh, engagements, although we should say you have a a, a role in a number of other uh, film projects in which you've dubbed in one thing or another, but the biggies are The King and I, West Side Story, and My Fair Lady. And the impression we get from your book is that by far... The most artistically satisfying of those three was the first, Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I, in which you ultimately dubbed in the singing of the great Deborah Carr uh, in the role of Anna Leon Owens. Um, Tell us the ways in which this project was done, which made it very different from uh, the other two which I mentioned, and which made this one so satisfying and successful.
2: Well, it was satisfying because, first of all, she had accepted the fact that she needed to be dubbed, and uh, she was being very cooperative, trying to get the best uh, job that, that could happen out of me by being very, uh, I would say, vulnerable and being very open to her acting process. And she was able to really... Uh, impart to me what she was thinking, what she was doing, hoping that I would be able to get to sound like her more and more, of course, so that nobody uh, ostensibly would know that it was being dubbed at all. And in effect, uh, that's what happened. I don't think people knew that it was being dubbed um, in those days, nor could they really tell the difference when they listened you know who who was doing the singing and who was doing the speaking there were certain songs where there was speaking going into singing um anyway that uh, that was the uh, that was the excitement with that that was the excitement with that uh film the other films um west side story natalie wood could not really tell how much of her voice was going to be used. Natalie Wood could not tell uh, whether she was good or bad, and so she thought that she was going to do it all and was kind of upset that... Excuse me. Mm -hmm. She was kind of upset that um, I was going to be doing part of her singing. She knew I had to do some of the high notes, so they recorded that in a different way with her doing the complete songs me recording the complete songs. Also, they said they were going to combine them electronically. And then she recorded to her own track, and then I had to go and, and put that into the film after it was made.
0: You had and, to end up, uh, because she mouthed, her performance to her own recordings, right, and then you had to re-record them, right. Uh, your singing had to match what she was doing on the screen, right. Let's backtrack to the King and I, which, of course, was done in in some ways just the opposite. It was so carefully crafted right from the beginning as a careful, close collaboration between you and Deborah Carr. And one of the things that's so interesting, as we read in the book, is that uh, of how much time you and she spent together, and 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 of even you being on the set and walking around the set with her and so on. W- what what was accomplished by that? What was the reason for, for that s- s kind of close collaboration?
2: Well, I think that's part of the acting thing. I mean, the movement of what you do is very important if you're moving when you're singing. Where you're going and why you're going to certain places and pieces of furniture and... <clears throat> um, pieces of furniture that uh, are, you encounter and what they mean to you and all of those things have a, a, a re- reaction in your voice. And and she would take from me the body energy that I was using in the singing and um, then I would take from her the way her mouth was opening and shutting and w- imagining the shape, if I had that shape of her mouth inside and her neck, and uh, of course I had to take her accent, and then we listened to each other as we were singing, sort of like we were absorbing each other in various ways. Then she would record that, um, and then she had to mouth to that recording. So that I, that that was the best way.
0: Right you you called each uh, you called each other each other's shadows. I mean, so much time you were spending together on the sound stage and, and also in the recording booth and so on. I mean, this could not have been a closer collaboration, and it sounds like also a, a very, very friendly one. I mean, this huge Hollywood star was very welcoming to you and, uh, and, and gracious to you in, in every way.
2: Yes, and, and she used to tell me stories, and we, we actually tracked down the fact that our families came from the same aisle in Scotland the Isle, Isle of McIntyre. Hmm. And um, so we, there was like a six degrees of separation, and our, our hair was the same color. We felt like we were sort of long-lost sisters. <laughs> hmm.
0: You tell us a sad thing about The King and I, and that is that one of the most wonderful moments in the score uh, ultimately was cut from the film, and apparently the the, re, the film and the sound recording of it, which was made... Has been lost. This wonderful film or wonderful section called "Shall I Tell You What I Think of You?" Uh, One has to hope that that's still to be found in some dusty closet, someplace.
2: Some may someday it may turn up. However, someday it may turn turn up. um, However, it is on the original LP. The, the recording of the
0: sound. Oh, so we do get to at least oh, hear the singing. Might,
2: yeah, it might be also on the CD that, mm. that's been re, re, uh, re-released.
0: One unhappy thing also about The King and I, of course, is the whole manner of the secrecy of your contribution. I mean, obviously, everybody directly involved in the film was well aware of it, and yet the decision was made at some point that the general public should be kept in the dark. And, uh, and partly because the lip-syncing of Debra Kerr is so successful, uh, one watches that film and it's hard to believe that she is not actually being filmed singing this music. But in fact, uh, your name was banished from the credits, and you even received a very threatening phone call from someone at 20th Century Fox yes. that you should not reveal the, the nature of your contribution to this film.
2: That's true. They they said uh, if I if anyone ever learned that I did any part of the dubbing for Deborah Carr, they would see to it that I wouldn't work in town again. Hmm. Which was very very threatening and very uh, <laughs> aggressive and like the mafia or something. Right. Uh, but but actually, Deborah Carr herself gave the uh, information out, saying to me that she didn't uh, she didn't have to know what was in my contract. And that she thought I was very talented and wanted to give me credit. Mm. And uh, I guess she wasn't threatened at all. Mm.
0: It's interesting too. Uh, towards the beginning of the of the book, you uh, tell the story of a gala screening of The King and I. I think it's The King and I, isn't it? Um, yes. Many years later, and uh, and
2: the re- re-release,
0: right? Yeah. And restoration. Yes, and uh, for the first time really you're officially shown this given the spotlight and uh, and accept an enormous ovation from those who are gathered to see this sparkling uh uh reworking of of the king and i uh i mean a restoration of the film in all of its glory but but there you are with uh many of the principal participants uh, long gone you are the great survivor finally able to uh uh received the full uh, accolades uh, you were you were due.
2: Yes, yes, it was it was quite exciting. And uh, some of the original people there, the, the the kids who had been kids were there growing up and <laughs> some of them and uh it w- it was really uh it was really amazing.
1: Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me Getting to know you Putting it my way, but nicely You are precisely my cup of tea Getting to know you Getting to feel free and easy to know what to say, haven't you noticed, suddenly I'm bright and breezy, because of all the beautiful and new things, I'm learning about you.
0: You're listening to the rebroadcast of a past Morning Show interview with singer Marnie Nixon, who passed away last week. The occasion of this interview was the publication of Marnie Nixon's wonderful memoir called I Could Have Sung All Night. Now, in both West Side Story and My Fair Lady, we are talking about collaborations that uh, were not nearly so so positive uh, and And mostly because of this sort of uncertainty, as you 've already touched on it, involving the the the, the star on the screen, uh, Natalie Wood and Audrey Hepburn, in terms of would their own singing suffice and in both cases, of course, the ultimate decision was was no so in in some respects, your collaboration, as far as those actresses was concerned was was not. The open, welcomed kind of collaboration that you had had with Deborah Carr in The King and I.
2: Right. I think uh, Natalie Wood was the most threatened because she couldn't tell how good she was and or how bad she was. And they they her ego was involved, and they wanted to make sure that they got all of the film filmed before she learned that they were going to probably throw everything out and use my voice totally. So that it was a little bit of a tense atmosphere there, and I had to kind of learn what she wanted and how she wanted to pronounce things and her phrasing just by osmosis. You mm. know, and the the coaches would then record their sessions between themselves, and then they would play it for me, and then I would I would then do examples for the coaches, and so they could approve. It was always through uh, somebody who who could could tell that this was going to work. And so it was, it was very difficult.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's just not the same sort of relationship at all. You also, uh, in telling us lots of interesting little tidbits about that experience, also share with us what I assume has largely been a secret until now, your surprise contribution to the very, very end of the film. Tell our listeners about that.
2: Oh, yes. At the very end of the film, she does a lot of uh, very emotional speaking you killed him, you killed him, te adoro, Anton, those words. Um, they, evidently, I found out later, Russ Tamlin told me that at the end of the film, they were so tired, everybody had worked so hard, and here there was this final emotional scene going on, that when they would get to the scene and would get really emotional, instead they would start giggling and laughing. And um, they just couldn't couldn't get it done. So uh, finally, they had to have it redubbed, and uh, I had to go and go to the sounds studios. Of course, I thought that I was a method actress, and I had to really be crying before I said these words. So I was in there for like six hours, laying in these words into her lips and doing overdubbing my speaking voice to her speaking voice too. But that anyway, that 's
0: the way it goes, wow, so interesting as As for my fair lady, you say that actually matching audrey hepburn 's voice was probably the greatest challenge of the three. I mean a greater challenge than matching that of Deborah or Natalie. Do you mean the character of her speaking voice?
2: Well, that plus the timbre of her voice
0: I mean, you wanted to sound something like her. I mean, the, the voice that we hear through all the dialogue of the film so that when it comes time to chime into the songs, we don't have a jarring sense that, who the heck is that? Oh, I mean, of
2: course. That's the worst thing in a dubbing job when suddenly you hear an, an, an attention hasn't been made to the, to the core of the tone. It has to be, you know, the, there's a different sound to everybody's voice. And her voice was um, very uh, like a mezzo and very kind of sultry. And, and uh, I would say grainy, kind of. And my voice, is, is it has more higher partials. It's more metallic. And it was very hard to kind of try to find a way to stretch that. Somehow I, I, I found a way. And her speech pattern is so unusual, the way she says the words, the consonants. Some of them are imploded and... When you really listen to it it's it's uh, it's not the usual kind of diction, it's very specific, and that was that was the difficulty there. Mm. but she was very cooperative even though she couldn't tell herself how much uh, at first would be used. She finally had to accept the fact that some of the things were going to be thrown out, but she was going to her voice lessons every morning to which I was present and was able to listen and and get acquainted that way.
0: So she was, a, she was certainly a nice person and kind to you.
2: Oh, yes. She mean, was very and, thoughtful.
0: And, and tried to make the best of what ultimately was probably a, a disappointing situation for her.
2: Right, right.
0: I really like that uh, you finally get uh, to return to the screen uh, in Rodgers and Hammerstein's The Sound of Music. In a relatively small role, of course, but uh, after uh, so many years of, of not being on on the screen, as you had been uh, much much earlier in your career, to return to the screen and to have a very positive encounter with Julie Andrews, who of course had created the role of of um, of uh, I can't think of the character's name in My Fair Lady, um, and uh,
2: Liza Doolittle, Liza. Liza
0: Doolittle, of course, yes. and. Um, it, I, I remember you either writing or saying in the uh, commentary of the film that you uh, wondered what it would be like to meet Julie Andrews, who, in some ways, by all rights, it should have been her voice in that film. And she was actually very kind and actually very appreciative of your great skill and talent.
2: Yes, she. She. Uh, it, it was surprising um, when we first met. We were all in the bungalow there with the in Robert Wise's bungalow and. Uh, there was uh, Richard uh, Christopher Plummer and uh, Eleanor Parker and Peggy woods mother Abbess and um, and Robert wise and uh, Julie and all the nuns and we were being introduced to each other all sitting around in a circle there and uh, when it came time for her to say uh, when to react when they said and Julie, this is Marnie Nixon. She stood up and she walked across the room. She has a kind of a loping stride. And she walked across the room and put out her hand and said, Marnie, I'm such a fan of yours. And that relieved everybody because they were Mm. wondering what it was going to be like.
0: Wow. A great, great story. Yeah. Your career has been uh, such an interesting one with this sort of film work, uh, with singing with uh, Liberace, another product of Wisconsin, as a matter of fact, and, uh, and of course a great teaching career as well. As you look back, do you ever wish that you had chosen one thing and stuck to it, or, uh, or, or do you feel like for you this was the best choice to, to really uh, exist and work in, in, in several different worlds, if you will?
2: Well, um, I think that I wasn't so sure of a, like a making definite decisions. I knew that definitely I wanted to be, uh, I thought I deserved to be a big star. Certainly I was working hard enough, <laughs> and um, I didn't think that I was ever giving up anything. I just, I just kind of accepted what came to me and um there were great regrets that sort of happened like i had to turn down san francisco opera at one point because of a family decision and i then arbitrarily turned down a time when uh, city opera offered me to do uh, the queen of the night and i said well i'll do the queen of the night if I can do also Susanna and the Marriage of Figaro or something more lyrical. And they said no. And so I said, well, no, I, I was just a little pipsqueak coming. I mean, I, may, I said no, which was stupid. I uh, I think I learned my lesson. I never say no. I always say yes. <laughs> um, even but,
0: even even when they call and say uh, you have to start dubbing the King and I in a month, I mean, uh, you were willing to say yes to something like that. And, of course, oh, we're all glad you did.
2: Oh, sure. Well, um, so anyway, there there are regu- regrets, and I think the biggest way to make sudden stardom then to diversify is probably the way to go. I mean, I saw, for instance, last night I saw Dreamgirls, which is, I think, a fantastic movie, and Eddie Murphy is singing in it. Who knew that he was a singer or that he was singing that way, you know? Uh, but they all know it doesn't hurt his career to suddenly be singing, Um in, in the early days it they used to say and maybe they do that if you're going to make a career as a as an actress you shouldn't let anybody know that you sing because they immediately think that you can't act the the people who do the hiring so um, in in line of that uh, I'm sort of um, I, I should have made a big star first, but I mean, you you can't just suddenly in your mind, well, I'm going to do this and go do that. You have to go, you have to react to what happens to you. <laughs>
0: exactly. Well, and of course, that's exactly what you did. You were given some marvelous opportunities and did marvelous things with them, uh, both on the screen and on the stage, and of course, in the studio as a teacher, all told uh, in such interesting fashion in your wonderful memoir, again, called, I Could Have Sung All Night, My Story. Uh published by Billboard Books, written by Marnie Nixon. Marnie Nixon, congratulations to all that you've accomplished and for writing such a wonderful, fascinating book. Best wishes to you.
2: Thank you very much.